and do open up um, your Bible, if you have one, to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah 50. I say it is jumping as we were in the, in the middle of Isaiah. Here Isaiah is addressing a generation that would live over a century after his time, who would be suffering in exile in, in Babylon. And they would feel themselves looking down at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 14, as forsaken. God's people, Zion, said, The Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. In response, God has made and continues to make astounding promises of his love. In verses 22 and 23 of verse 49, God will tell his people that he will lift up his hands to the nations and raise his signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. And then they will know that God indeed is the Lord, and that those who wait upon him shall not be put to shame. What a contrast. The astounding promises of God, and the utter lack of confidence of his people. They think themselves forsaken and forgotten, yet God tells them that he will restore them in the most extraordinary way. Let me pray, and then we'll pick up as I read in Isaiah 50. Father, please, as your word is now read and preached, would it come to us, not in my voice, but in yours by your spirit. Have dealings with us, transform us, address us each by name, that we might know that it it is a word not just for the generation which first heard it, but, but for us, that we might depend upon you as the Lord Jesus Christ did in his earthly ministry. In his name we pray. Amen. Read from Isaiah chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce which, with which I sent her away? Of, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. 
Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a flame, you who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Isaiah 49 has set up a contrast between the apparent or supposed forsakenness of God's people and the astounding promises that God made. And you can see why the first, as it were, audience of Isaiah, though they didn't live in Isaiah's time, the, the generation exiled in Babylon might have felt forsaken. For, for decades away from home, deported, the temple, the place of God's dwelling, burnt to the ground. Everything that they held dear, everything that gave them security, torn away from them. And yet God promises in a way that they can barely begin to comprehend that he will bring them back and restore them. You can see why they not, might not believe. The question is, what will God do about it? Here is the people who refuse to believe and trust in his promise of salvation. How, how will God respond? When I started my current job as a teacher, I had to go on a first aid course. Now, I had not realised, having not done a first aid course for a while, that you now need consent in order to deliver any kind of first aid. The first the section of the first aid course was how to obtain consent in order to deliver first aid. So sort of sit someone down, not quite fill in a form, um, but sort of take them through, here's what I'm going to do, do you consent to me doing that? Um, the smart Alex sort of put their hand up and said, what if they're unconscious? And they said, well, if they're unconscious, you need to work out, well, would they consent if they're awake? And work out if there is a, and they're kind of implicit consent. Now, if you decide if this is um, health and safety gone mad or a sensible attempt um, not to impose my incompetent first aid upon people. But, but the point is, we might begin to think, well, why would someone possibly refuse first aid? There they are with the bone sticking out or, or the bit of the blood spurting out of their finger, whatever it might be, and say, actually, no, I'm fine. Please leave me alone. I'm, I'll just walk it off. It's going to be okay. Well, of course, we expect someone to say, well, yes, get out your triangular bandage and, and ring the ambulance and do everything else that you're taught to do. And yet, presumably, some people would say no. And is that not what we're faced with here? Here are people in, in as it were, the, the worst kind of danger. They've got the worst kind of injury imaginable. Everything they hold dear is lost, and, and it seems like their relationship with God is blown up. And God says, I will give you the answer for nothing. And they say, well, no, thank you, we'll, we'll be okay. You've forgotten us, you've forsaken us, so you don't really mean it. Do you see how extraordinary that is? It's, it's like the social experiment often conducted or stunt as someone stands on, on a street corner and says, just come to me, there's a sign saying, come to me and ask and I'll give you a five pound note. And he watches as hundreds of people walk past and, and not one goes and says, I'll, I'll have the free money please. See, as Isaiah writes this generation who, who will be in dire need... God knows that they will say no to his offer of forgiveness. Not just one or two of them, but but all of them. Not one will say yes to the astounding offer of restoration that he gives. 
And the question is, what will God do? What will God do? As his people, not in part, but as a whole, not temporarily, but it seems sort of congenitally almost, they, they, they just on and on from the heart won't lessen or accept the forgiveness he offers. What will God do? Will he just ask again louder? Will he finally give up on them and say, well, in that case, it's over. You've had your free strikes and now you really are out. Will he say, well, I'll punish you even worse. Do you think this is bad? Now, for your ingratitude and your foolishness, something even worse will come upon you. Well, none of the above. So there is a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus' suffering, but there's something deeper going on when we see this passage in context. You see, this, this passage shows us the way that God responds to our sin, our, our lack of dependence on him. God's response is to be so generous, so gracious, that when we say no to his offer of forgiveness, he finds a way to do it without us at all. He does it despite our complete lack of cooperation. I want to follow that through in, I guess, three movements in this little passage. Firstly, verses 1 to 3, we, we hear God's accusations that were offered against his people and, and see exposed our lack of dependence. Then in verses 4 through to 9, we, we see the voice of the servant step in, a, a new voice that gives, as it were, the, the answer that the how things should be. And then finally, in, in verses 10 and 11, God puts it all together and shows us how we are to interact with our own lack of dependence, but with the, the servant's perfect dependence. Firstly, looking at verses 1 to 3, I guess this would be my first point, we, we see our lack of dependence on God. We're shown our, our lack of dependence on God, and we're shown where it comes from. Again, despite God's free offer of forgiveness, not one person says yes. Despite it being a Godfather-style offer you can't refuse, though in a positive rather than negative way, no one says yes. How could God's people possibly be that stubborn or, or, or foolish, offered the, the world and yet deciding to remain in in exile, on their own. Well, as is often the case, the the, the wrong decision flows from a wrong understanding of who God is. Wrong practice flows from wrong theology. They say no because they do not understand who God is. They don't depend on him because they don't know what he is like and what he can do. We know what they're thinking from the accusation that God makes against them. We only get, as it were, here one side of the conversation. But God's response shows us what their misunderstanding is. Let's again to verse 1. God asks the pointed question, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? You see, they're acting as if God's love and his power, his willingness to do something about their situation, his capacity, his ability to do it, have either run out or are inadequate. They're acting as if the covenant promises that God had made now no longer apply. 
His love went so far, but they've done something which, which finally and irrevocably broke that relationship forever. And God says, where then is the certificate of divorce? If you say that these promises no longer apply, if you were to break your marriage, you would at least have to provide some kind of certificate. So surely if I've broken something far greater, the covenant promise I made at, at Sinai that was bound in my law and, and certified by, by my own hand, if, if I've broken that... You must have some kind of certificate, some kind of proof. You're saying that that I wasn't capable of keeping my own promises, that that, that my patience ran out and I gave up on you. Well, prove it. Do you really think that my love ran out or grew cold? No. God turns the, the, the tables and says... You've misunderstood entirely. You see, you you blame me, says God. But behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgression your mother was sent away. Because people act, I guess, like also pupils when they get in trouble with me. There are some standard responses on on being found um, to have done something wrong. The first words that come out of someone's mouth are usually, it wasn't me, sir. Um, frequently, when I've just watched them do it, I, I literally sort of stand there, I, I watch them do something they shouldn't have done, and I say, you really shouldn't have done that, or, or words to that effect, and they say, it wasn't me, sir. It wasn't me. When that fails, it, it, it typically then turns to, you didn't tell me not to do it. Or worse, that effect, or you did something else too, or they did that. But you see, the, the, the desire to, to avoid all accusation against ourselves, it, it, it wasn't me to, 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 to lie, and more to, to turn the fault over to, to someone else. God's people don't just doubt God's love. They think it's run out, though they can't provide a certificate, but, but they, they more think that it's somehow, in, in some sense, God's fault and not their own. They see not a, a loving God bringing discipline, but, but a God who's abandoned them. Expressing that the very heart that's led them into exile in the first place. A similar accusations are repeated, I guess, from God's people as, as we hear that, that second charge of God. Well, do you, which of my creditors did I sell you to? It's as if they think that God's power was, was limited and there wasn't quite enough. And, and so he had to kind of sell them. He was going down the back of the sofa and couldn't find enough change to pay off his creditors and said, I tell you what, I, I've got this people, Israel, you can have them and in return you can, you can give me what I need. He says, well, clearly that's not the case. Do, do you really think I had to sell you to someone, that I, I lacked something which I could gain by, by abandoning you as my people? That, that I, would, I would love to get you back from, from, from Babylon, from exile, but I, I can't quite afford the price. Just give me a few more months and I'll, I'll get the cash together and then I'll buy you back. To which of my creditors did I sell you? God's power is as unlimited as his love. 
He takes them back in, in very visual fashion to what he did at that great moment of the crossing of the Red Sea in, in Exodus. He asks them again, in verse 2, Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that cannot redeem, or have I no power to live? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the, the sea. Not only do I, but I did it. I make the rivers a, a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe their heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. You see, God says, it's as if it were, I, I'm standing on, on the street corner offering to hand out five pound notes for free and no one says, yes, they think I, I can't do it. I, I lack the willingness to do it or, or more. I lack the power. He says, think of the time when, when the fish were, were flapping on the floor with no water because I parted the sea that I might make you my people. Do you really think I can't get you back from exile in Babylon? Is there anything I cannot do? What does this all mean for us? Well, I, I think if we're honest, we, we see a picture of ourselves in, in that generation of, of exiles. Because while much has changed over the last two and a half thousand years, that the human heart is, has not. Sin, the refusal of, of God and his ways, has not changed. And sin is not just expressed in, in a desire to break God's commandments, but, but also in a lack of trust in and dependence upon him, a refusal to believe that he can do or will do all that he has promised. It's easy to think, isn't it, in our heads, if only people would understand what God is offering in Jesus Christ, of course they'd say yes. But, but here we see a picture of, of people rejecting even the free offer of forgiveness. Of the answer to their, their most immediate and, and greatest need, as it seemed to them. And yet they say no. And how often we are the same. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've not put our trust in him. The, the picture the Bible gives is not of someone sick with sin, but someone dead in sin. Who does not have even the, the, the trust or dependence to, to say yes to the free offer of forgiveness. Worth knowing for ourselves, if, if, if we don't trust in Jesus, we need God's help to do that. More as we, we hold forth the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to our friends, we, we're, we're coming to those who are incapable without the power of, of God of saying yes. As clearly as we explain that the free offer of, of Christ, no one would, would say yes without his help. And more, I think, in our own lives, we, we, we have a kind of spiritual long COVID. Even after we say yes to God, that, that, that lack of trust, that lack of trust in him often remains and, and has to be rooted out. A sense that it's all just slightly too good to be true, that, that anyone would, would do this for us, that anyone could do all that God has promised to do, to the extent of remaking the heavens and earth and, and ending all suffering and pain forever. Can God really do that? Will he really do it? It may be in your own lives there are, there are points, promises, particular promises perhaps, that, that you find particularly hard still to believe what is the answer again we see it here it is to ask ourselves what am I saying about God 
But behind my lack of trust, what what image am I giving of, of the Father, of his love, his character and power? As I see that God has promised something in this, I, I doubt that it's true and I refuse to, to live in a way which expresses trust in, in that promise. I am saying something about God. My, my failure to live the way I should and to trust in God as I should is, is driven ultimately by a misunderstanding of who God is. It's the reason why catechisms often begin with, with, with the character of God. What? Who is God? You see, if there's something wrong with my Christian living, it's, it's because my theology has gone wrong. That's not that egg-headed or, or intellectual to, to, to sit back and say, well, who do I think God is? An infinite and eternal, unending love and grace, mercy and power seen in, in Jesus Christ, to which there is no limit. There is no promise that God will not and and could not keep. My my first question, I guess, is as I hear the the response of of my friends saying no to to, to Jesus Christ, to say, well, what have you misunderstood about who God is? What is it you've not understood about the, the character of the God who makes this offer that you would possibly walk away from the best offer you've ever had? Free forgiveness and eternal life for, for, for nothing, the cost paid by Jesus Christ and not by you. As I look in my own life at the ways which I don't trust in God, what have I misunderstood? From our problem, our lack of dependence, we, we, we turn, and here's where I guess I would want us to focus, to the, the alternative it were, and that is the, the servant's complete dependence on God. The servant's complete dependence on God. Now, it'd be easy to miss because there's no quotation marks, there's no marker in my Bible, there's not even a heading here, but there's a change of voice between verse 3 and verse 4. In verses 1 to 3, God, the Father, has, has addressed his people and accused them of their, their lack of trust in him. In verse 4, a new voice breaks in. We know it's new because it, it names God in the third person. God is no longer I, but, but he's the you. Now, who is this voice? We find out in verse 10, it's, it's the servant. The servant, a figure who appears throughout these chapters of Isaiah. Now, now, spoiler alert for the Bible, but the servant is Jesus Christ. He would name himself in his earthly ministry as the one who fulfills these chapters of Isaiah. He is the one who was promised. I find the servant songs in Isaiah astounding because we, we hear, as it were, the inner life of Jesus. We read the Gospels and we see Jesus in action, but we see Jesus in action from, from the outside, from, from the, the perspective of his disciples. But, but here in Isaiah, we, we hear in his own words, his own thoughts, his own feelings, what it's, it's, it was like, it is like to be Jesus. Here is Jesus seen from the inside in his own words, the autobiography of our Saviour. And how does he describe himself? Well, he describes himself as one who is completely dependent on God. God's response to the failure of his people to depend on him is to provide someone who will depend on him. And the difference could not be more stark. You see, the problem was that God's people have not understood who God is, but 
But we see that the servant entirely understands who God is and therefore entirely depends upon him. We see it just in, in the title by which he addresses God. In verses 4, 5, 7, 9, he addresses him as the Lord God. The Lord God has given me. The Lord God has opened. The Lord God helps. The Lord God helps. The Lord God telling us exactly who the servant knows God to be. He is God, all in capital letters, representing the divine name, the the covenant name that God revealed to to Moses. The name that that expresses his, his mercy and grace bound to his people by the promises of his word. He knows God to be full of unlimited love who will never divorce his people because he has promised never to forsake them. He also knows him to be the the Lord, the sovereign ruler and creator of all things who can do anything. In contrast to a people who do not understand who God is and so don't trust him, here is a servant, an individual, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows exactly who God is. That he is Yahweh, the God revealed to Moses, God, Jehovah, the one whom we can trust, but who is also the, the sovereign Lord of the universe. He understands what we don't. What a reminder of Jesus' true humanity that dependence is. That, that Jesus depends on God day by day. As a human being, as human as you and I, he, he knew God as, as his Sovereign Lord, the one covenanted to him, and he humbled himself before him and depended upon him. He prayed. He read his Bible. He listened. And he needed God's help to receive a word that he would speak. Now, if we need any encouragement to this life of complete dependence, this this knowledge of who God is, look at the fruit of it in the life of Jesus Christ, the life of the servant seen here. What fruit does this dependence bear in the life of the servant? Well, verse 4, he has sustaining words to speak. Verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Why did Jesus Christ have something to say to people? And again and again, in all the cases, we read through the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels that we see that he had just the right word to speak to someone. Whether they were resisting God or, or, or suffering, he could immediately say just the thing that they needed to hear, the thing that would, would turn around and transform the situation in which they found themselves. How did Jesus know what to, to say? Well, it wasn't because he had particularly acute psychological insight, though I'm sure, humanly speaking, he did. It wasn't because he was an expert in any particular field, from from demonology to psychology, but because he listened to God. Because day by day, he depended on his father to show him the way. He listened to the words that God had spoken and trusted in them. Don't we stand in his ministry again and again? He has just the right thing to say because he has it from his father. 
Morning by morning, Jesus sat down and reflected on his father's word. Do you want to be useful to those around you? Do you you want to be the person who has just the right word of encouragement to speak to someone? Well, the answer is trust in God. Trust in God. Spiritual usefulness is, is attained ultimately by spiritual humility. I have something to say because God has given me something to say. Attend on preaching, read your Bible because you want to be useful. And it's in that dependence that God gives us the words to speak as he gave them to the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus wasn't above listening to his Father that he might be made useful, then we are not. If Jesus read his Bible to be a useful servant and minister of, of God, then we're going to have to too. Jesus has to say any words. His complete defense also leads him to uh, obedient suffering. In verses 5 and 6, we see an extraordinary picture of, of, of the suffering that Jesus is willing to go through in order to depend upon and, and obey his Father. The Lord God opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks, those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. To Isaiah's first hearers, that might have sounded strange. To us, we know it would be fulfilled literally. Jesus would literally turn his back to be beaten. He would literally have his beard plucked. He would literally be disgraced and spat upon for the sake of obeying his father. What a contrast. God's people won't accept free forgiveness from God because they lack dependence on him. Jesus will accept from his father disgrace, spitting, beating, humiliation. We, left our own devices, won't even depend on God for restoration at no cost to ourselves. The Lord Jesus Christ depended on God even when it would lead him to the cross. Jesus utterly depends upon his Father. Again, I guess the application to us is it's clear if we are to be like Jesus... We need to know that God calls us to depend upon him and follow him wherever it may take us. We, all too often when we face suffering and, and trial, want to run away. We want to trust upon ourselves to, to fix it, to find a way to, to avoid that suffering, to, to make the situation go away, to, to make it better. And yet God would say to us, depend on me. Know that trust may lead you to dark places, but it makes it no less real, no less right, no less Christ-like indeed. If we want to live for Christ, then we must bear reproach and suffering with him. Trusting in God means trusting in God wherever we might go. And we will not bear suffering and reproach if we're going to do it for our own glory, because there is no glory in in suffering for for God, no glory for me. I I may think that I look like a great hero by by suffering, but in the end, when it comes to to the moment of of someone calling us names and words, telling lies about us, I'll give up unless I'm doing it out of dependence on God. Jesus Christ did not ultimately suffer because he found some kind of vicarious glory in in be willing to suffer on the cross. He did it for the sake 
of his father because he trusted him. And the final fruit of Jesus' dependence, though, is, is, I guess, in some ways more positive and encouraging. It's this. He had total confidence. Again, looking at verses 7 and 8, he knew the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Him come near. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, the moth will eat them up. Jesus knew, even at the moment of his greatest suffering, in dependence on God, that he would be vindicated. That though everyone called him a, a blasphemer, even though his own disciples had, had fled and, and left him on his own, that God would not forsake him. In the midst of trial, he could have an astounding confidence that whatever the world may say, he was in the right. How? Because he depended upon God. For year upon year, day upon day, month upon month, week upon week, even hour upon hour, he had listened to God's promises of love. He knew God's power to achieve all that he had promised. He depended upon God, and so in the moment of of trial, the moment of, of accusation, at the moment of, of rejection and abandonment, he knew that God would never, never forsake him. The fruit of a life of complete dependence was an utter confidence in, in the darkest moment. I don't know what moments you find yourself in now or will find yourself in in years to come. I can tell you that the way to as it were, survive that the trials of the Christian life is depend upon God and, and then know that he therefore will vindicate you. Not as it were to, to go into fix-it mode, how can I make this better, how can I clear my name, but to trust upon the God who brought us to that place and who will keep every promise that he's made towards us. There indeed is the, the, the root of of all useful Christian ministry, complete dependence upon God. Again, the root of Jesus Christ's ministry on earth was in his dependence upon the Father. Jesus, who could do anything in his own strength and power, who could miraculously heal as, as God come in the flesh. Jesus, who, who could have done anything on his own, nonetheless can say here in this servant song that, that all of his usefulness, all of his confidence, all of his willingness to suffer flowed from dependence upon his father. Indeed, Jesus Christ was, was so dependent upon his father that here he expresses that even his dependence was from his father. You open my ear to hear. I don't just get up every morning and listen to your word by my own power because I trust you, God. You open my ear to hear you. I, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God as much as the Father, and yet fully human, I, Jesus Christ, listen to you because you give me the capacity by your Spirit to do so. Do we have that kind of dependence on God? If we want to bear even some reflection of the fruit of Jesus Christ, we must have that dependence. Finally, and very briefly, We've seen, as it were, our lack of dependence all too often on, on God. And we've seen the servant, Jesus Christ, complete dependence upon his Father, by contrast. Finally, 
Let's see, our dependence on the servant, which, as it were, brings those two things together. Our dependence upon the servant, who's dependent for us. Have you seen the beauty of Jesus' dependence? We might feel there's a little bit of a, of a mismatch here. I said, well, God's response is not just to say to us, even louder, well, depend on me. To respond to our lack of dependence by just saying, well, try harder. But is that not what God has done? His people won't listen. He says, well, look, here's what you should have done. Here's Jesus. And we say, well, I'd love to be like Jesus, but I can't do it. That's why I still live in verses 1 to 3. I still find it hard to trust you. I see the beauty of Christ and his dependence. I, I see the fruit it bears. I, I long as, as much as I humanly can to, to strive to be like him, but I can't do it. Is this not just re- re- repeating the, the, the same thing that, that I couldn't do before? Well, verses 10 and 11 end with, I guess, a note that's slightly more positive than that, that's slightly more hopeful. I think we see it in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant. And here I think there's a hint that the answer is going to be more positive than the, the questions offered in 1 to 3. There there was no one who responded to God's offer of forgiveness. Here the implication is at least some will. At least some will fear the Lord and obey the voice of his servant. I think the clue is in what's changed. Note how now that the servant, as it were, appeared. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme in, in, in sound. It, it rhymes in ideas called parallelism. And here we say uh, the same thing as it were stated twice. And that's the point here. It's the same thing stated twice. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Not, not two different things. Who here fears the Lord and obeys the voice of the servant? But who here fears the Lord which is obeying the voice of the servant. Who here fears the Lord by obeying the voice of the servant? Who here finds in the servant the picture of, of what is to be the Lord, but more, who here fears the Lord in and with the servant? The new, as it were, aspect of what's going on here is, is the presence of the servant and his work on behalf of, of his people. The passage will go on to, to give a renewed choice. To, as it were, light torches, lights for ourselves to try and light our own way, to depend upon ourselves to solve the problem we find ourselves in. By implication, the, the problem of our lack of dependence on God. Will we try and fix it ourselves? The problems we face, will we light our torches and, and try and sort it out ourselves? Or will we trust in the servant? Well, I trust that Jesus Christ has, has done what I can't and that he will help me. Well, I trust in Christ as, as he trusts in, trust in his Father. Well, I know that I have useful words to speak. It's because Jesus gives them to me. Well, I know that if I suffer, if I'm willing to suffer for God, it's because I know that Jesus Christ suffered for God for me and will help Do I have confidence? Well, I have confidence, I guess, as I suffer because I see that Jesus Christ had confidence and more that his confidence was vindicated as he was raised from the dead. I can fear the Lord and trust in him because I obey the voice of his servant. I know what Christ has done. And so I won't light my own torch to light my way and and then end up in darkness and death, but rather trust in Jesus Christ who, who depended perfectly on God 
Not just an example to me, but in my place, that his dependence and the fruit of it might be mine by faith. Will we trust in God the, the way that Jesus did with the help of Jesus? Have, as it were, his dependence flow to us as, as a gift. Let's not end up back in verses 1 to 3 where this wonderful offer is made and yet the people say no. But instead, let's trust that God can provide all that he's promised, all that he's done in Jesus Christ to us if we just ask, if we just have faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have done in Jesus Christ what we could not. That where we did not and and could not depend upon you, that you sent one, the servant, who utterly understood who you are because he was one in nature with you. And so utterly depended upon you, even in his full humanity. We thank you that he suffered in our place, obedient to you, dependent upon you. And that the fruit of his suffering is is our life, that he bore our sin, and that he gifts us his righteousness. Please would our dependence in some way reflect his, as we have faith and so receive all the benefits of his life, as the same spirit which empowered him to dependence comes to rest upon us. Would it make us more and more like him, that we might bear more and more fruit like his? In Jesus' name, amen.